we're sitting here in a really weird time in the economy. Yeah. I think post COVID, one of the major swings back were towards discount products as opposed to like, like things I need versus things I want. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think is, is driving. And by the way, I think it's already swinging back. All right. We've been here for a week now and we've been in the same clothes. There's no shower in this building. We've just got a toilet and a sink. Can I leave? When can I leave? You can't leave yet. <laughs> I'd like to, at this point. You can leave in 45 I, minutes. Anyone listening, this is Harley. I'm being held hostage. Blink twice, <laughs> please. <laughs> Come save me. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. So I love Tapcart. It's a drag and drop builder that turns your Shopify store into a native mobile app in just a few hours. The average time to launch an app live in the app store is just about two weeks. Crazy stats, average 43x ROI, high conversion and retention rates, 100% organic reach per push, push notification CTR 7x higher than email, over 92% engagement rate. So limited supply listeners get their first two months of Tapcart for free. So you'll actually be able to launch your app live and test this new owned sales and marketing channel. Head to tapcart.com slash limited. That is tapcart.com slash limited to book a demo and start building your app today. You won't regret it. All right, so we're back. Moise, what are we going to talk through? We're going to talk about Shopify fulfillment, a massive acquisition. Probably, the, I imagine it's the largest that Shopify's done with You mean deliver? deliver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about some marketing stuff and how Shopify is helping merchants with the changes in iOS. Uh, we're going to put on a shareholder hat and then we're going to get to know you a little bit more. Sure, that's good. Okay, let's shop, start with uh, marketing, actually, because okay. that's the yeah. goal. Like, you know, uh, look, I'm an investor in a bunch of brands, but I don't see nearly as much as you do. And I'll tell you, like, all the brands that I was, um, it, uh, that not all of them, but a lot of them, in 2020, they're like, holy cow, we're going to be larger than Amazon. And then 2022 hit and they're like, okay, we are not going to be larger than Amazon, it turns out. You know, uh, iOS 14 and a half was a real body blow to a bunch of e-commerce businesses. What have you seen? How have you thought about the changes in iOS? There's a bunch of things happening all at the exact same time. And so I think it's important to actually segment each of those out because you'll get way too much noise, not enough signal if you sort of bundle yeah. all those things together. Mm -hmm. First of all, we're sitting here in a really weird time in the economy. Yeah. I think post-COVID, one of the major swings back were towards discount products as opposed to like like things I need versus things I want. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think is, is driving things. And by the way, I think it's already swinging back. So like we're sitting here, September, 2022, I, I think things are already swinging back. That's the first thing. The second thing is fundamentally, the iOS changes made it more difficult, not necessarily to, to advertise, but to do specific targeted advertising. Mm -hmm. The example I always give is that I am a huge fan of of boosted boards. I don't use the one wheel. I know some like the one wheel. I like boosted boards. So when boosted board at some point targeted me, they were able to figure out that I love skateboarding and I love technology and the Venn, Venn diagram overlap. The perfect product is, in my opinion, boosted boards. So now it's more difficult. Now if boosted board wanted to target me, they would have to target me because maybe I, I shared some blog post about boosted boards or I shared something about skateboarding or about technology. So I, I think that is also getting more challenging. So first thing is sort of we've had this shift the last couple of months towards these sort of staple items as opposed to luxury or items that are more um, nice to haves. Second being the targeting is getting more challenging. And the third thing I think that is also happening is the return of physical retail. On the return of physical retail, I think the one, something that people are missing, and this, your crowd, your audience, I think will appreciate this more than anyone. There is this meme around e-commerce growth rates and, you know, the return to the mean and all this stuff. 
So let's be clear what happened. During the pandemic, so the the equation, the calculation for e-commerce as a percentage of total retail is very simple. The numerator is e-commerce. The denominator is all of retail. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, two things happened. E-commerce went up and the denominator drastically went down. Basically zero. You removed all of physical retail. So it was like e-commerce over e-commerce. It looked massive. Well, in the last six months, you now have a more healthy denominator that includes actual physical retail. So from the looks of it, it looks like e-commerce has dropped meaningfully. But if you just actually look at e-commerce growth on its own and you forget about the rest of retail, what you actually see is that by 2025, e-commerce will eclipse $7 trillion. That the growth rate going forward will be a lot closer to 2019, which by the way, was already fucking incredible. I'm so glad you mentioned this because you know what Walmart does in their 10K? They're like, this is what our store over store sales look like. That's right. Do you guys look at that from a GMV perspective or do you guys look at just total GMV? We look at total GMV. We look at total GMV. Yeah, you don't look yeah. at store over store and being like, oh, what are the stores in, uh, you know, 2020? Oh, sorry. We'll, you're talking about, so Co- we, from we do, a core we do look, we do look at cores oh, for yeah, sure. I actually fact, saw that in yeah, the we, we, 10K. Absolutely. In yeah, fact, yeah, that's I a huge part of business model. Yeah. Like, yeah. That actually, yeah. if you were to ask me to boil down why Shopify's business model is so yeah. strong, you unique, it's yeah. be- exactly. Yeah. It's because the cohort that started in Q1 2013, which I think Figs is a part of, is not only still bringing revenue on to Shopify, you pointed it up. Yeah, yeah I actually yeah, saved yeah, exactly. the screenshot. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's growing over time. When I was getting ready for this. So I every cohort is so basically good. an annuity that keeps growing yeah. and it layers and layers. So the, the, the Q4 cohort from 2010, is still growing. The Q1 cohort from 2016 is still growing. So we absolutely do look at that because that is- Can a Shopify merchant have a similar graph like this through Shopify? What do you mean by like that? Like they're looking at cohort analysis like this? Can they look, can they see their yeah. own cohort? Yeah. No, I don't I don't think so. Okay. Um, although I think once upon a time when we hit a million stores remember, many years ago, I think we told everyone what number store they were. Gotcha, that's um, awesome. I thought that was, that was kind of neat. But do you guys measure what percentage of your traffic comes from Facebook? We do. We, okay. we look at where. We'll, is that public information sorry, or not uh, public traffic information? Traffic to Shopify? Yeah, Shopify stores. Shopify stores. Shopify stores. Oh, Shopify Shopify stores. stores. Yeah, we look at that. I don't think it's public information, but Got we it. do look at sort of source of traffic for that. And and the reason it's, it's we don't share this because it's on our data. That belongs to our merchants. Yeah, I just meant in the aggregate. We so, look at it from the aggregate. Yeah, yeah. yeah in the aggregate, for instance, too. like, um, you know, the GMV is each individual store's yeah. data, but you have so, to share so, that. So we look at it in the aggregate, but but not on an individual store store basis. So So three things are happening that I think has made things challenging right now. However, what I think also is happening is one, brands, stores, merchants are getting far more resilient about where they get their traffic from. There's no longer this, I have one massive provider of new of new traffic and I'm only going to focus on that. We're all kind of thinking a lot more holistically about how we build our businesses. So you've seen that and percentage of Facebook traffic drop? Uh, no, not necessarily. Although okay. I do know that people are, I, I, I know that merchants tell us that, that it's more expensive to acquire it, but I'm not necessarily sure the traffic has dropped. Got it. I just think they're not necessarily as, as able, they're able to target the, the customer the way they did. And we'll talk about audiences in a second. But the other thing that I, I think is also really important is that I don't know how many times on the show you guys talk about Omnichannel, but I believe fundamentally that we will stop talking about this term entirely in the next 12 to 18 months because every business to some extent is going to be omni-channel. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be like talking about the omni, it's going to be like talking about the color television, which no one talks about because every television is fundamentally a color television in 2022. Now, it's not to say your business is going to be half online, half offline. Um, you may have seen the last couple of days, uh, Gymshark just launched a store in London, a physical retail store in this beautiful kind of high street area. I, I don't think their GME is going to shift entirely to, to in store, but they don't necessarily use the term channel conflict in the way that I think the larger retailers do. 
So I think that also is, is, is playing a big role here. I think the third piece is this sort of consumer, the reduction in spend on things that you want versus things that you need, I think it's gonna, that is, that will change very quickly as inflation goes down, as the economy gets better, you will see sort of this return to a more normalized spending pattern of things that you actually want from brands that you want. Okay, uh, appreciate all of that context. I agree with all of that. Um, let's talk about Shopify audiences. Yep. You had mentioned that. Shopify audiences has lo- launched several months ago. And basically you're helping create, you're helping merchants create their own audiences on Facebook through Shopify. If you're a Shopify plus merchant, you're helping uh, merchants create their own audiences on Facebook. Well, let me, let me um, sort of, let me explain it a bit. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're a Shopify plus merchant. Right now it's only for plus. And you have, I don't know, let's say 10 SKUs. Yeah. And you say, these are three SKUs I want to I want to sell more of. You feed them into the audience algorithm. We feed you back with a sample audience or a, a lookalike audience, whatever you want to call it. Now when you're buying ads on Facebook or Instagram or Google or any ad platform, you're uploading the same stuff you always did, which is your product descriptions, your product photography, yep. metadata, whatever you want to upload. But you're also uploading this piece of data that enables all these ad platforms to better target um, the and the piece of data you're, in a, you're uploading is an audience. Is a lookalike audience yeah, yeah, okay, or a sample yeah. audience. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly right. And by virtue of that, you are going to see a higher return on ad spend. So it's it's pretty new. Um, it was something we, we were we were playing with a year ago. It became far more important on the backs of IDFA and ATT, ATT changes. And it's working. I mentioned, we have I think we have five or six case studies up on, on the website, but like Blender Bottle, for example, yeah. saw six times ROAS uh, on it. Bush Bomb saw... A 46% increase in click rates. Lamaru saw 2.5 times increase in ROAS. Happy Hippo saw 4.7 times increase in ROAS. There is really demonstrable impact to the audience's product. And, and the cool part about it is it's all first party data. It allows merchants to do what they love doing uh, just more efficiently. So we're not necessarily creating any more work for them. And it's one way that Shopify can use our scale, our leverage, and, and our economies of scale to help merchants deal with this and, and, and better compete. Honestly, I think this is uh, exactly what merchants have always wanted. So on behalf of the entire e-commerce community, thank you. Oh, like, thank you. Oh, this cool. is, you know, generally I think of Shopify as like defensive where I'm like, help me, I've got to go out and get a customers, but once they come in, Shopify helps me convert them. This is the first time where I feel like you're not giving me a defensive weapon, you're giving me an offensive weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's uh, not for everyone. I mean, some merchants will say, look, I don't want to do this. I'm not looking to, like I, even the, the yeah, they, <laughs> I, I don't want to do this. I, I want to keep even though it's anonymized data, I don't want to participate. And that's absolutely okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm just what, joking. What, what, we, what we find happen though, is that the merchants that do use audiences begin to start using audiences more and more. And eventually our hope is that it would be a bad decision to run an ad without first using audience, Shop. if you can, yeah, yeah. without using How audiences. many merchants have tried it? It's it's fairly small. I, okay. I, I can't give you the number, but it, it is still fairly small, but it's it's scaling really, really quickly. And we have, we have sufficient amount, like the, the sample size is large enough that these numbers are significantly yeah. significant. So more and more merchants will use it. It's not in the tens of thousands yet, but eventually it'll get there. At this point, it's also, we're not like, it's it's indirectly monetized. There's no charge for it right now. We're trying to get as many yeah. merchants use as possible. And eventually we may even offer it to merchants that are not on Plus, but not, not yet. Now we're starting with Plus as well. One of the things that, look, it's not just also about ad targeting, it's also about measurement. And I think two things are happening at the same time. You talked a little bit at our last episode about data and understanding the analytics side of things. We want to make it really easy for one, for merchants to have an easier time targeting the right customers for the right products, but also to measure the efficacy of those ads. And I think audiences does both as well. One thing that is getting way less attention, but this is the right venue for for this discussion, is collabs. 
Mm-hmm. Another thing, even though collabs is not necessarily getting the same attention as audiences, it's really, it's an amazing product. So I believe the, what they call like the, the creator economy is worth something like a hundred billion dollars. And the numbers are fairly, fairly rough about how many people are participating. It's like 4% of creators basically make a hundred billion dollars. Is this the Dovetail acquisition? Dovetail definitely uh, was a huge part of this. Yeah. So Dovetail was already doing it really well, connecting creators and brands. So on one side, you have a lot of great brands, great businesses, great merchants who know how to build great product, but they, you know, they try to build a YouTube channel or create content. It's not, sometimes it's not great. On the other side, you have these amazing content creators who try to create product and, and sometimes they're unable to do it or not, not able to do it as easily. And so what Collabs is, is it's, it's effectively this, this piece of software that's a matchmaking tool connecting brands and well-aligned creators. And so if you look at audience by itself, it's really amazing. If you look at audiences plus collabs, you're beginning to see some of the things we're able to do with our scale where we can further level the playing field, make it easier. Um, and then of course, shop plays a role in that as well. But those are some things that we're working on right now that that we think will be incredibly valuable for merchants. And it's we've just scratched the surface on those. Yeah. Let's uh, switch gears because we've got to uh, um, keep moving quickly. Sure. And let's talk about Shopify fulfillment. Yeah. Acquired Deliver for $2 billion. That comes on top of another acquisition of Six River Systems some yeah. time ago. And, you know, when I heard you talk about this just a few moments ago, I think what you were basically saying or really on our last episode was what you really liked about Deliver was how they were able to move inventory across their different distribution warehouses, not necessarily directly to your, I mean, that helps getting it to your porch faster, but really it was how do I move it inside the distribution warehouses so that they know 30% of your sales are going to happen on the East Coast. Is that is that really what you were talking about? So, so let's go high level yeah. and then we can drill down because because. Logistics is a really complicated thing and everyone has a different relationship with logistics because everyone's sort of at a different point. But there are fundamentally three phases of logistics. The first phase is from the manufacturer or the factory to the port. And that's what we call freight. That's really where we partner with Flexport on that. Yep. We think mm-hmm. Flexport and everyone they work with, they're doing an amazing job. And so we've, we've deeply integrated the Flexport and we're already working with them. So factory to port freight. That's fa- that's sort of the first phase. The second phase is now that it's at the port, it has to basically figure out where it needs to go to the dis- distribution centers, the fulfillment centers. And that is really where the balancing takes place. And that's, you know, it comes into the That's port. the magic of deliver. That is the magic of deliver. So that was a piece of product, you know, balance, inventory balancing that we were going to build ourselves. We met deliver. We knew that a bunch of our merchants were already using them. Everyone that used them loved using them. And the team, Harish and his team like behind Deliver, we think are like literally the best on the planet at this sort of balancing stuff. And the way they built their business is also like asset light, software focused, very similar to Shopify. So we that that middle part from port to fulfillment centers, that is really the balancing piece. And that's what they do really well. So we acquired Deliver as again, because we wanted that product acceleration. Now it's at the warehouses, um, at the fulfillment centers, excuse me, from the fulfillment centers to the porch, that really is SFN. That's really where the fulfillment, our, our fulfillment sure. network takes place. And that really is, is powered almost entirely by partners. Across the entire thing, however, we use our FMS, our fulfillment management system. In some of the warehouses, we also use 6RS, which is the robots, we call them chucks, um, to optimize warehouse management, warehouse efficiency. But the entire stack from freight to balancing to that final distribution piece and 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 fulfillment piece that is entirely what Shopify Logistics is. When you and we don't need to own all, every piece of it, but that's what merchants need from us. And the idea was just to just to kind of stay high level for a second before we, we drop down to the details. We didn't want to go into logistics or fulfillment. This isn't like this big ambition we had ten years ago. We did it because 
it was a problem for merchants. It was something that they were struggling with. And we feel like in some cases that was a hindrance to their growth. That was a glass ceiling on how big they can grow. And so we're not trying to build the Amazon model where it's as cheap as possible for 24 hour delivery. What we want to do is make it so the merchants on Shopify don't have to think about it. And in some cases, again, like Flexport in that first piece, we'll partner. In other cases, like Deliver or SFN, we may partner, we may acquire them ourselves, but it's the entire stack we want to make. We want to make it so you don't have to think about it. You know, last episode, we were talking about universality. Is that a universal problem? And you're going to say, yes, it's a universal problem. Everyone needs to deliver products to the door. But is that a hair on fire for most e-commerce businesses where they're like, I'm having a tough time delivering products to consumers or is shipping... It is one of the reasons that merchants don't hit a particular scale. There is a particular time where a merchant and a brand requires fulfillment assistance. They yeah. go to 3PL. 3PL says, here are the minimums. Here are the costs. We can't do customization for you. We definitely don't do pick and pack or custom kitting. But here's what you get, and it's very, very expensive. The reason is every merchant's trying to do it by themselves. And by us, like Shopify is now about 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. If you were to think of us as a single merchant we would be the second largest online retailer in America. Amazon would be first, Shopify would be second. And then you'd have like eBay and everyone else well down the stack. So what we're trying to do, whether it's with capital or payments or logistics or any of our merchant solutions, is to try to use that economy of scale to get leverage and get better pricing, better product, better integration, and give those economies of scale to the small business, medium-sized business, and larger business. But most to answer that, that question, it is for merchants that do 10 orders a day. It's also for merchants that do 10,000 orders a day. One thing that is universal across the merchant base is fulfillment and moving, you know, atoms is still very challenging. The internet helped democratize and, yeah. and simplify most things. It didn't actually do anything for logistics, but we think we can do a better job of it. And we can do it in a way that is very much integrated right to the core platform where we can partner when we need, we can build when we need. Ultimately, it'll be one more thing that we do for merchants. And can you tell us what percentage of merchants use Shopify Fulfillment Network? Oh, I mean, still as a percentage of total merchants, we have millions of merchants. It's a small percentage, but it's growing rapidly. The merchants that use Shopify, I'm one of them with Firebelly, yeah. love it because again, it's you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. You don't just get better costing, better integration. Yeah. The fact that I can track my tea from China, where some a lot of our tea is made, our, our Chinese tea, right to the end consumer, and I can see it across one single dashboard, is fucking unbelievable. And because I'm part of this network, this community, I'm paying the same pricing as the biggest companies in the world pay. Mm -hmm. That is a really big deal. That is great. Um, you know, have you ever read the book um, Ride of a Lifetime? Mm -mm. Um, Bob Iger was the CEO of Disney, and uh, he wrote, wrote in this book that they'd agreed to acquire Twitter and had uh, settled on a price. And on like Tuesday, they were supposed to sign documents to like, you know, definitive merger agreement. And uh, like Elon Musk, he decided not to do it, but he did it before he signed the documents. And the reason he writes in his book, he's like, I, I thought on Sunday, I was like walking around my house and he's like, I decided not to buy them because I realized we didn't want to be in the business of like, all these problems that are going to happen on Twitter, like, you know, all of this conversation where we're like, what are you moderating? Are you moderating child pornography? Are yeah, you like, what is free speech? Yeah. What is not? Every fourth quarter, I have to yell at every 3PL I work with because I'm like, get these packages out. What happened? This isn't working. The USPS, yeah, all this stuff happened. Are you, were you guys thinking, okay, this is going to be a problem or like, was that going to hurt the Shopify brand? It is better for us to do it than for, the, for them to do it on their own. It's not them on their own necessarily. It could be a 3PL, right? Like, no, it, it, no. It, it can't be a 3PL. Most of these people don't qualify for 3PLs or they can't afford the 3PLs or the 3PL are not very well. I mean, the reason you're yelling at 3PLs 
frankly, is because most 3PLs suck. Yeah. And so what we do is we go in just on the, so that third phase, that 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 actual fulfillment phase, you know, once it's at the 3PL or once it's at the the Shopify spoke or the um, our, our fulfillment centers and it needs to go to the end consumer, one, they're all using our software. So it's fully integrated. We can monitor every single product. Two, we have certain quality control centers that if they don't hit, they're taken offline. They're no longer part of the network. And they want to be part of the network. If they're part of the network, it means they never have to look for another customer ever again. Mm -hmm. So that's the second. The third is because we're connecting all of them, we're able to collectively negotiate the best pricing on shipping. Fourth, we have 6RS, which is the unfair advantage for every single 3PL, where if you put these actual robots, these chucks in the warehouse, your warehouse will run better, faster, and more effectively. So did we wake up in 2012 and say, you know, one day we're going to be so ambitious. In 10 years from now, we're going to build this unbelievable logistics network? No. But that's what you, if you want to be the company that powers commerce and retail for entrepreneurs of all sizes, you got to do the hard stuff too. And this is one of those things that's hard. And the good news is that we're good at hard stuff. So recently I bought a brand and we put it on Tapcart pretty quickly. It was almost one of the first things that we did as far as relaunching the brand. It's been huge for building out a push subscriber list as well as increasing our conversion rate among customers who already love us and use our product because it's such a consumable product. Features include the ability to put out exclusive product drops and launch products early to mobile app users. On average, Tapcart users see 10 to 30% app adoption rates from their existing customer base. And you don't need to worry about getting downloads or figuring out how to market an app because Tapcart has you covered and can even coach you on how to drive subscribers. Start today with a demo and one month free at tapcart.com. I think you are good at hard stuff. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that I think that what you're saying here in terms of uh, doing the hard stuff and helping the uh, merchants where it's not universal problems, like more people would, ra more merchants would rather have you see build an upsell solution than they would get into deliver. But that. there are other people that can build, a lot of other people that can build a great upsell solution and there's almost no one that can build a logistics network. I would say the opposite. I would say a lot of people can build a, a logistics network. Oh, no, I'm sorry. A good logistics network. I, I think a lot like, um, you know, Allbirds uses a logistics network. Figs does. Because they I have it's to. not Shopify's so, so, fulfillment so, network. So both Allbirds and Figs, and you can ask Trina, you can ask yeah. uh, you, Joey. You can, you can ask Joey these, these questions. They didn't want to have to do it. They had no choice. They had no choice because they needed to build something that was custom. They needed something that actually worked for their particular business model that allowed them to keep their branding because they didn't want to have Amazon basics boxes going out on their behalf, especially not Allbirds, uh, in the, uh, who, you know, who, uh, who has a famous story sure. there. But they had no choice. What about the other millions of merchants on the platform who maybe are not selling as much as figs or selling as much as Allbirds, but they also want to provide incredible opportunity and fulfillment for their consumer? One thing, though, that we haven't really talked about that is that is the linchpin to this, to, to delivering value around logistics is shop promise. The ability for merchants on Shopify to tell their consumer, this is when you can expect your package. We promise you in this time frame you will get it. That not only has an amazing return on investment or, or value add to consumers buying preference, who they buy from, but what it does also do, it allows small businesses to now offer what only the big companies were able to afford. And if we didn't do logistics fulfillment, they couldn't do that. I think it's that's great. And I think that's what we were talking about on the last episode, which was here are all the other things that small businesses are facing problems with uh, that large businesses are. And you can imagine do. just because like every large business has now reset the expectation to the consumer that they know when to expect their packages. That's something that most businesses cannot do. Yeah. 
with logistics, with the film, and they can do that with us. Uh, fantastic. Okay, let's switch gears again because we've got to get through a bunch of stuff as sure. fast as possible. Okay. So the, uh, these are not rapid fire questions. We have those later on, but I'm going to ask you these okay. as rapid fire questions. Sure. So I'm going to put on my shareholder hat. Yep. I own millions of dollars of Shopify stock. Love the brand. Me you too. have two divisions. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> merchant solutions and subscription solutions. I think a lot of people would be surprised that merchant solutions generates more revenue than subscription solutions just by virtue of the fact that they think of Shopify as a platform and not necessarily like the credit cards. But tell me a little bit like, so Shop Pay, you know, I buy from of Shopify websites and I get a text message and check out via ShopPay that way. What percentage of consumers are checking out via that text message? Because I think that's a real moat you have against all e-commerce. Yeah. Look, I, I think ShopPay not only does it convert much better for the merchant, which is really good, but also yeah. from the consumer perspective, it's much faster, it's secure. For sure. Um, but I, I can't give you the numbers on exactly how many people use ShopPay. What I can tell you is it is becoming consumers' favorite way to check out on the internet. Mm -hmm. Full stop. What I will tell you, however, is to your sort of larger point around merchant solutions versus subscription solutions, the best way to think about Shopify is that Shopify wants to create this. We want to be the most important piece of software that merchants use every day. So what we tried to do is try to figure out what are all the things that merchants are doing where we can use economy of scale that we have, and they can also maintain independence. If you think about the marketplace world, marketplaces allow you to, to leverage their economy of scale by being a participant in the marketplace, but you don't get independence. If you build your own stack, you get a, you get the independence, but you don't get economies of scale. On Shopify, you get both. And so the reason we're doing more of these merchant solutions and the reason that merchant solution um, revenue is growing is because there's more things that merchants require from us. And the cool part about our current state is that we can keep leveling the playing field across all these different challenge areas. Now, there are some things we probably will never do. I'm not sure we'll ever do manufacturing, for example, sure. but it's just, that's just not our thing. But generally, most of the things that our merchants require that is painful, that is a challenge, we can do through merchant solutions. And the cool part is more and more what's happening is merchants now, the relation they have to Shopify is we're not just their e-commerce provider, we're not just their point of sale provider, we're now, we help them with bank business banking with things like balance, and we help them with things like markets for international selling. Uh, our capital business is you know close to four billion dollars of cash advances and loans. If you look at any of these by themselves, they would be if they were independent, they'd be leaders in their category. But they're they're all part of the Shopify ecosystem, which is that operating system we're talking about. Uh, this is a question that I know you can't answer. When is Shopify going to raise prices? Uh, as a shareholder, you know, there's a lot of time, like, you know, native was pay like, uh, you know, one of the questions we got, got on Twitter yesterday was I pay less to Shopify than I do for my analytic solutions. That seems bonkers to me as a shareholder. I don't know who they're using for analytic solutions, but what I would say is that Shopify is growing not by increasing pricing. We are growing by adding more value, by creating more value for the merchants. Like if, you, if you look at our if you look at our attach rate, for example, the, our product util, utilization rates, it is the highest it's ever been. Most companies, when they want to increase their attach rate or the product utilization rate, they do so by hammering pricing. We haven't done that. So we still have that lever available to us. But right now, we want to increase our product utilization rate by adding more product that people want to use and getting more people to adopt it. How often do you guys talk about pricing internally when it comes to like, you know, platform fees? Annually? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, pricing more is always- More frequently? Uh, more frequently than annually or uh, annually? Uh, pricing comes up. We we consistently look at pricing, but it is really important that Shopify is the best deal. From a value to cost perspective, it has to be a great deal. It's and the, the reason, only deal. And and, like, uh, and, and and so that provides us with an opportunity at some yeah. point we could increase pricing, but right now we want to grow the business by adding I, more value. I have another question. So sure. on that, right, an easy way to grow- your revenue in that case would be opening shop pay to everybody yep. and then taking a fee of everybody's payments. Is that ever going to happen in the next couple of years? I don't know. Maybe we do that. 
I feel like if Vista Equity Partners, Vista Equity Partners would come into Shopify and be like, 10x the fees, you know, like. Uh, yeah, maybe, but this, yeah. I, I don't know Vista, so I'm, I, I don't mean any any disrespect to Vista Equity Partners. I don't know anyone there. But what I will say is that we're trying to build a hundred year company. We want to build, you know, yeah. a company that, that owns commerce and retail for the world, that a company that our merchants are on believe is the most important software that they love using. And I think the way to do that is to add a disproportionate amount of value. Now, whether or not, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, Shopify Plus, I think started at 9.95, then it went to 2,000, then we added the 25 basis points. I mean, we have played yeah. with pricing. Mm -hmm. Plus is about six or seven years old. We have played with pricing and, and have increased it, but there's other ways for us to grow our business than simply increasing pricing, which I think is what a lot of other companies do. And, and it's not to say we'll never increase pricing, but we want to grow the business by value. Yeah, it seems like a, a missed opportunity, particularly like, you know, you talk about sort of the top of the funnel, like all the people in the shower, I get why you're charging them $50 a month. It seems like a missed opportunity for massive brands who are, you know, would have massive changing costs yeah, and but look, you extract mean, so much value. But if you look at, you know, companies, great, great, iconic companies, Spanx or, yeah. or, or you know, uh, yeah. Mattel, for example, or even some of the big CPGs, you know, when they sell a lot, we share on the upside, we have 25 yeah. basis points. And when they don't sell a lot, you know, it, it's, it's slightly less. Yeah. That business model is quite good. It means we're on this exact same side of the table as merchants. Very few companies are on the exact same side of that sort of success sharing as Shopify is. Agreed. I feel like you guys are really good at that narrative. And it's why every time I see on Twitter, somebody laughs at the stock price going down, just like, this is a hundred year game that they're playing. You can clearly tell by the way that they build the product and talk to consumers. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, as a shareholder, look, I've never sold a single share of Shopify stock and can't imagine I would. The problem is I'm playing a 10-year, even a 20-year game. A 100-year game is, you know, a game my kids need They'll to be play. Dead. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's look, the hard part. And, and we're really fortunate. You know, we have investors that bought into the stock during the IPO and are still are still of course, shareholders, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah, we are playing a longer game. There is a way for us to, you know, increase pricing now and 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 revenue would automatically go up. A better way to do it is to be a lot more thoughtful about it. And I think that's again what you get with founder-led companies as opposed to professional managed companies yeah. who Agreed. their entire, you know, all they want to do is go and increase stock. One price. of our rapid fire questions uh, this was going to be uh, how would Shopify be different if it were based in the United States? And that is the uh, I think this is the answer. You think is, so? Yeah, I think this I'm is not, the answer. I mean, uh interesting. You know, in Canada the hit on Canadian companies a lot often is that they're acquirees on acquirers. And there's not that many IPOs happening anywhere right now, but there's even fewer IPOs happening in Canada. In fact, if you look at the big tech companies that have IPO'd in sure. Canada, they haven't done that well. So usually the knock on Canadian companies is that they're not ambitious enough. I think we're very, very ambitious, but I'm not necessarily sure we would be up, upping our pricing if we were based in the U.S., Okay, let's move on to the rapid fire questions. I appreciate that context. Um, let's start because we got, right. uh, we're going to be fast through this because I know you've got to run soon. So, first question: What's the best part about working with Shopify? Well, for me, it's easy. Like my Venn diagram of my personal life and my professional life completely overlap. I am obsessed with entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship is like the greatest tool in the whole world. It gave my grandfather independence and 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 survival, and it gave me. I mean, to find my life's work. So for me, that's what it is. On Shopify, I think we talked about it almost ad nauseum at this point, which is really, really easy to get started and incredible to scale. That you never have to leave the platform is so unbelievable and so unique. I don't even have a second point. It's it's the, it's that. Awesome. What, what is the biggest mistake Shopify has made as a company? Sometimes we're too slow to respond to certain things. And we talked about some of the things here that are lacking. Sometimes we sort of, you know, are, are waiting for more data and sometimes maybe we're we're not as quick. And other times we're way too fast. We put out something that maybe is not fully baked as much as we want. Can you give me one concrete one? Yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, we put out 
a lot of stuff we put out like curbside pickup had to sort of be, you know, not rebuilt, but had to be built for scale because we just wanted to get it out so quickly. Um, we probably should have done point of sale earlier on. Uh, it was sort of, we the, the tea leaves were that a lot of our merchants also want to sell in a physical store. And our point of sale product right now, I think is world-class. It may have taken us a little bit too long to get there. What Shopify store do you purchase most often from? Blue Salt. Maybe Sol Angeles, number two. James Purse, number three. Yeah. Who is Shopify's biggest competitor? At the small end, probably non-consumption, like just not not commercializing your hobby, like not, not starting something. At the higher end of the spectrum, probably a combination of your own like, like home stack, like your own in-house system, plus Magento, plus, you know, Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, ATG Hybris. In the middle, like there's a bunch of random stuff, like a couple CMSs. Like I think you mentioned your, you know, native was built on Woo. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some people that have- I, I 60 don't, million a year on Woo. 60? Wow, on that's Woo. probably the biggest yeah, yeah. Woo store ever. You, you don't really see that on WooCommerce yeah. ever or WordPress ever. Yeah. Same thing, you don't really see that on like any of the CMSs like Wix or Squarespace. Um, so I'd say at the lower end, it's like, you know, not starting, like non-consumption. At the upper end, it's like those big enterprise stuff and probably those crazy installations where they built everything themselves and they have like 500 engineers running around. Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. What was the hardest part of of launching Firebelly, your own store, and did that lead to a product innovation at Shopify? I felt so much pressure because I was I'm a big part of the Shopify story that my store had to be perfect. Um, and my, my my business partner, who's also one of my best friends, David Siegel, we got really pissed off with me because he's like, we just have to ship it. He's, and I was like, no, no, this is bigger. It's not just a random thing we're launching, like a passion project. Like, so that was probably it. And then did it lead to product? Well, I mean, I'm deeply involved right now in pretty much every merchant solution uh, because we use everything on Firebelly. So like logistics, I'm literally sending like feedback every single day on things they can improve on logistics. Tell us a story to help us fall in love with Toby. Oh, um, during the road, the IPO roadshow, um, Morgan Stanley was our lead left, our main yeah. banker. This is one of my favorite Toby stories generally, but it speaks volumes about him because everyone knows him as like this crazy product genius. And he is, he's the smartest human I've ever met. And he's so thoughtful about the product and the business. And he's not just building the product of Shopify from a from a technology, but also the company is also his product too. And he, he th he's so thoughtful about that. But one of the best stories that people don't know about him is that on the IPO Roadshow, it was, it's three weeks, it's totally crazy. Morgan Stanley has taken, I don't know, a thousand companies public, maybe 5,000 companies public. And Toby asked Morgan Stanley, in fact, told Morgan Stanley that they had to drop us off in Ottawa every Friday evening and pick us up again Sunday evening because he wanted to spend his weekends with his wife and his three kids during the IPO Roadshow. Wow. And Morgan Stanley said no one ever asked him to do that before. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, one last question. So every single Shopify employee I've ever met has always said great things about the culture, the environment. Uh, working at Shopify, oh. whether they were a part of a layoff or whether they still work at Shopify, whether they were a contractor, didn't get their contract renewed. It's always been just a great experience. That means a lot um, to me. Wow. Yeah, and it's huge. I think like I admire companies where an employee is left and they still say good things. It means there was a really good leadership totally and a really agree. good culture. What's one way you guys build such strong and uh, long-term culture within your employees? Because I also, I, I have an ex-Shopify employee and I also see those values yeah. transferred over to me. I mean, some of it is, and this is so cheesy, but it's, this is really true. Like the whole mission thing is a big deal. If you are clear of what your mission is, then you should also be clear of the people that come and join the company. Okay, let's say you have a thousand people that work at your, at your, at your business, at your company, at your brand. Every next person, the, the most people assume that they're not gonna affect the culture, but they have, every new person joins the company affects the culture oh so slightly. And so you want people that ultimately care about the mission that actually want to be there. But the, the the bigger takeaway, which is the people that have left Shopify that still say good things, is because 
you know, everyone talks about the right time to join a company, early stage, pre-IPO, pre-seer, forget that stuff. Like it, joining a company, you should join the company at whatever time is the right time for you. But there's also a right time to leave a company. And actually th there is very little books or blog posts or like, you know, Twitter uh, threads around the right time to leave a company. And I think that is really important. So when it's someone's right time to leave, whether it's us or them, we do so with integrity, with, I think with class or grace, if you can articulate, if you can say that thing on a podcast, but like you do it in a way that, that is incredibly thoughtful and human. And even when you do layoffs, we, you know, it was one of the more difficult things to do in any leader is to do layoffs. And you do so with, with, you try to do so with character and you try to do so in a way that, that actually you can be, uh, you can be somewhat proud of. But I, I think, the mission thing is a really important, like Shopify is a company built for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. That is really unique. This is a company that like, it isn't just what we put on the wall. It's not what we just say, on, it's not just what we say. We really give a shit about this thing called entrepreneurship. Okay, fantastic. That's going to wrap up episode 12. There's one thing I'm going to comment on, which is I was reading your 10K and the mo craziest part was it's uh, said that no, there's no key man insurance on you or Toby. Go get that. As a business, go get that. <laughs> what does that mean? That means if uh, somebody dies, often businesses will have insurance policies. Like if you're Oprah, you better have a key man insurance policy on Oprah Winfrey, right? Because otherwise that magazine cannot get published the next time because mm. she's on the cover of every single one. Shopify does not have that on their execs. Please get that. We need it. <laughs> uh, anything you want to plug, Harley? No, I. I um, it was great to come on. I, I mean, the only thing I will say is this. I mean, you guys have both put on Twitter that I was coming on and we sort of crowdsourced some questions and some comments and some themes. And one of the things I was, I mean, some some people, you know, there were a couple of snarky remarks, which is totally fine. But for the most part, what I was reminded of when you, when you did that was this community we have, it's not even just a Shopify community, it's a community of like, of modern entrepreneurs and people that care about building brands and businesses and and, and building things that are in a, in a really unique way. This community we have, whatever you want to call this thing is really, really special. Agreed. And We've never, Nick, you and I met today for the first time. We've been friends for years mm -hmm. and we met today and, and the Venn diagram of all of us connecting this whole community is based on this, this thing we call entrepreneurship. And that means a hundred different things, a hundred different people. But ultimately we built something inadvertently as a community that is so special. I don't, I don't think we fully realize it. I could not agree more. I think uh, Shopify since the early days with Arming the Rebels has done such a good job of building such a cohesive and well-covered community. Yeah. And I'm not so creation. sure how many lives you understand how many lives you've affected. Yeah. And my like life, I didn't go to college. And like, so uh, my life has been made thanks to you. Wow. You, you know, so much families, uh, family wealth, family freedom, the ability to pursue uh, passion projects. Like life itself has been changed as a result of you and Toby. And so on behalf wow. of everyone, thank that means you. so much because we don't take that for granted at all. And look, I know there's certain parts of the product and the company and, and I'm sure the culture of things that we could do better. What I will tell you is that we care deeply about the stuff. We will make it better. We will keep getting better. Shopify is as much of a, of a pursuit of, of personal growth as it is as a company. And we want it to be incredible for all of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Well, with that, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. 